Welcome to Catholic Radio Indy's Lunchtime Podcast Sampler. I'm Kent Blanford. Each week, we'll bring you a sampling of some of the best Catholic podcasts being prepared and shared out there on the internet. This Sunday, we mark the Feast of the Transfiguration of the Lord. Jesus reveals himself to James and John and Peter. The story is told in the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. So we'll begin this week's sampler with that reading from the website of the United States Council of Catholic Bishops. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, conversing with him. Then Peter said to Jesus in reply, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud cast a shadow over them, and then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell prostrate and were very much afraid. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, and do not be afraid. And when the disciples raised their eyes, they saw no one else but Jesus alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, Do not tell the vision to anyone until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. There's a lot to unpack from that gospel passage, so we'll begin with a podcast from Catholic.com. This episode of Catholic Answers Focus features Father Hugh Barber as he takes us on a tour of the role of Christ's transfiguration in the life of the Church. Starting with what happened and explaining where the feast originated, he helps us grasp the relationship of the transfiguration to our own spiritual lives. What's the deal with Christ's transfiguration? Father Hugh is next. Hello and welcome to Focus, the Catholic Answers podcast for living, understanding, and defending the Catholic faith. Remember to subscribe to Focus on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. That way we'll get a reminder to you when a new episode is available. And also, please give us that five-star review. That helps to grow the podcast this month. The church celebrates the Feast of the Transfiguration, and the story of how we got this celebration in August is fascinating. So we asked Father Hugh Barber to share that story with us today. Father Hugh, as you probably know, is the former prior of St. Michael's Abbey in Orange County, California. That's a community of Norbertine priests. He also has served as our beloved chaplain here at Catholic Answers. More than learning just about how we got the summer Feast of the Transfiguration, however, I also wanted to ask Father Hugh about the Transfiguration itself. It's obviously a moment of tremendous importance in the ministry, in the life of Jesus, and in his communication of himself to his apostles. So what is it? What exactly is happening in the transfiguration, and why is that happening? In answer, as Father Hugh usually does, he uncovers some very helpful nuggets on the relationship between the transfiguration of Jesus and our own spiritual lives. Uh, so, with the Feast of the uh, Transfiguration uh, approaching, 
I just wanted to start out by asking you, Father, what is the transfiguration? We have it described to us, but what actually is happening there? Is it a, a, a vision? Is it a, an epiphany? What would we call it? What's happening in the transfiguration of Christ? Well, it's certainly a vision or an epiphany, which means the epiphany means a revelation. But in the case of transfiguration, it is uh, our Lord's principal miracle of all the miracles that he worked during the course of his earthly life up until his glorious resurrection. Because what it means is that in his body capable of suffering, he ordered the revelation through his body of the glory of his divinity. So his divine nature and his soul uh, uh, cooperating let the glory that flows from his divine nature and soul uh, his beatified soul show forth in his body. So it wasn't the permanent glory of his risen body, which would be, you know, actually inhabiting the body regularly, but it was a transient revelation of what was hidden uh, to be revealed in the resurrection. So it was a miracle uh, with regard to Christ himself. I mean, you might say he worked a miracle on himself. Uh -huh. He let the constituents of his um of his natures uh, work together to reveal the glory of God in his uh, human body. So it's a mystery of the incarnation. Consequently, it's just like in the baptism of the Lord, it's also a, a revelation of the Trinity because you're the Father's voice. This is my beloved Son, right. in whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. And then there is the luminous cloud, the light, which uh, the lightsome cloud which uh, covers everyone which is, of course, a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And so you have this revelation of the Trinity and the revelation of the final glory or perfection of, of the Savior. So it's a very, very great miracle, first of all, worked by him. And so, and so does our Lord work miracles on uh, spiritual substances, like the demons and like human souls? Right. He worked miracles on the heavenly bodies, like the sun and the moon uh, going dark. Uh, he worked miracles on... Uh, Irrational creatures, uh, like with the pigs running, you know, and all oh, kinds yeah. of things that are that are in the Gospels. He worked miracles at every level of creation, right? But with the bread, the multiplication of the, of the loaves. But this is a miracle he worked for himself. I see. To yeah. reveal to reveal himself to his apostles in a special way. And what are Moses and Elijah doing there? Well, our Lord is revealing that he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And so he, he has Moses appear with him and also Elijah appear with him. And, of course, the tradition is that Elijah is to come before uh, the final coming of the Messiah. So this is also a coming of Elijah, um, who, of course, ascended to heaven in the chariot of fire. We just celebrated his feast. Or no, we're just about to. His feast is, I think, the 26th, but anyway, of July. And this is going to be for... Um, for the uh, transfiguration in August. We have a lot of neat things going on in these uh, weeks yeah. of midsummer and late summer. Um, and so it was to show that the law and the prophets both bore witness to the Messiah, the Christ, just as the Father and the Spirit did, and uh, also to show uh, that, uh, as, the, as the evangelists tell us, they, they were discussing his passion in Jerusalem. Right. And so the, the mystery of the passion is hidden in this glorious revelation because Moses, Elijah, and Jesus are talking about his upcoming passion. 
uh, while the apostles are there amazed by the whole scene. So practically everything is there. His divine sonship, his incarnation, uh, his his future suffering, his being the fulfillment of the prophets. It's all there. Um, and the law of Moses, it's all there. It's a summary of everything, practically. And yeah. is, is, is does Peter get it right or does Peter get it wrong when he wants to build booths uh, there? Well, booths is in one translation, tabernacles, Tab- no, okay. tents. Tents, in other words. So it's an evocation of the tabernacle in the desert. You know, before they had the temple, right. as they were traveling to the promised land, to just just uh, make a place of worship right here, and right. so it was a natural a natural tendency. And in fact, of course, Christians did eventually build a church there on Mount Tabor, uh, in the north there, uh, to commemorate uh, the Lord's Transfiguration. But um, it it wasn't it was it was a, an ex, a, an expression of his enthusiasm and appreciation of the experience. There's nothing to criticize in his uh, okay. Uh, um, uh, uh, expostulation, you might say, his, his, his outburst. You know, he just was he was, he was taken by this marvelous scene. Right, right, okay. And so now, what am what what is what am I or you or any other contemporary believer or believer, you know, who comes to you know Christ at a late date? And I mean, after the resurrection, what are we to to make of the transfiguration? Is this meant to instruct us? Is this meant to inspire us? Are we meant to how are we meant to kind of integrate this into our into our faith? Well, the way we have access to it is, of course, at first it was a miracle wrought to encourage the apostles in okay. view of his coming death. And um, it's right after that that he gives to Peter his uh, the keys, the kingdom of heaven and his headship over the church. And also Peter's um, uh, dismay expressed to our Lord that he should not suffer. And so our Lord gives him that famous line, but get behind me, Satan. So it's a, it's a very important event for the apostles, strengthening them, but also revealing uh, the fact that the passion part, as opposed to the triumph, messianic triumph part of uh, the incarnation was not yet fully in their minds. So it was for them in the first place, but for us, we have access to this mystery through the liturgy of the church, uh, because we celebrate the Transfiguration is a feast every 6th of August, and that's in the churches of both East and West, right? All the Eastern rites of the Catholic Church and the Roman rite or Latin rite of the Catholic Church and all the uh, Orthodox churches and other Eastern churches, they all celebrate the Feast of the Lord's Transfiguration on August 6th. And so in the, in, in the summertime there, we're led to the consideration of this mystery. Why August 6th? Uh, there are very many theories about it, but one very attractive one is that it's parallel with September 14th, which is the Feast of the Holy Cross. And when you go back to Lent, you find that on one of the first Sundays of Lent, for us it's the second Sunday, and the Byzantine Rite, I think it's the third Sunday, um, the Gospel is of the Transfiguration. And then you have practically 40 days later, our Lord's death and resurrection. So in the midst of the summer, you also have these two fixed feasts, one of the Lord's uh, glorious transfiguration and then one of his saving passion. And so there's a fixed version of that relation, and it's 40 days later also, and there's a movable one. So there's a little parallel on the calendar in the two parts of the year. I see. And uh, there, e- there are evidences of this, that that was sort of the idea. They just counted back from the Feast of the Holy Cross, which is an older feast, uh, they just counted back 40 days as though it were Lent, and so it was, because they thought to themselves, well, now when is the other time in the year when we always commemorate the Transfiguration? Oh, 
the second Sunday of Lent or the third, whichever one it is. And then they just counted back, uh, oh, counted back to from the, the cross and passion 40 days and then stuck the feast there. That's one explanation. And its relationship yeah. with the with the cross of Christ is that in a certain sense, it's a reminder to us of what's actually happening on the cross, that this is not just another uh, Roman crucifixion, that the who here is the important thing. Right, and, and that um, uh, even more deeply, you might say, or more comprehensively, our Lord in St. John's Gospel constantly refers to his passion as his glory. Oh, as his yeah. glory. And, and uh, even though John's Gospel does not have the account of the Transfiguration, only the Matthew, Mark, and Luke have the Transfiguration still, unless you count John's little reference to having seen his glory, glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, right at the beginning. Yeah. Some see in that a reference to the Transfiguration. But our Lord refers to his passion as his glorification and so that's that again what you're just saying that that, that the the true identity and 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 power of the one suffering is uh, revealed in the transfiguration to encourage us but I think that uh, in the church's tradition uh, the feast of transfiguration has been a, attached to something else rather interesting uh, that unites the prayer traditions of East and West very interestingly. So would you like to know about that? I would very much like to know about that. Yes, Father. <laughs> Thank you for the setup. Well, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> well, I know I was going on for a while, so I figured we need a break. So just in case you have anything you want to say. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, well, what's particularly beautiful and significant to us, but you won't catch it unless you're uh, – praying the divine office of the church or aware of this tradition already. And in fact, the divine office, and this is even the new post-conciliar divine office, if you don't do it in Latin, I think you miss it. Maybe if you use some of those other uh, vernacular versions like the um, Mondline Psalter, which has the actual hymns in English based on the real hymns in the, in the, in the breviary, you might catch it. But on this feast day, we, we sing the hymn, Jesu Ducis Memoria, which is the hymn in honor of the holy name of Jesus uh, by St. Bernard. And it's all about the holy name of Jesus and how sweet it is, how beautiful it is, how consoling it is, uh, what a precious possession it is, all of that. It's this whole uh, pan to uh, the, uh, the holy name of Jesus. Now, in the 12th century in the Latin West, the devotion to the name of Jesus was very, very strong. It came through the Cistercian monasteries and into all the others. Um, and uh, that was at the same time when the Feast of the Transfiguration was being beginning to be celebrated under Eastern influence, you know, because of the Crusades. They realized, well, oh, we don't have this in our calendar. We need to have this. And so they put it there in August. Now, we've moved forward a little bit with this devotion to the Holy Name, which is then picked up out of the monastic context by the Franciscans and taught by St. Bernardine of Siena and his disciple, John of Capistrano. And so they were the great preachers of the holy name. Well, uh, here's the tale. Uh, um, so this devotion continues, and it's and it's a very powerful one in the life of Christians, the invocation of the, name of the holy name of Jesus. And at the time of the Crusades, it was something that was uniting East and West, because at the same time this devotion was increasing in the West, 
it was at its high point of development in the East, in the monasteries, with the Jesus prayer and the invocation of the uh, Holy Name. Right, right. And so there's a point of spirituality that's just, just very similar and occurring at the same time, but from different sources, different persons and different traditions. Well, uh, when the Turks, who were determined to take over all of the ancient Roman Empire and more, had finally... Um, taken the great city, the new Rome called Constantinople, and had turned uh, the Cathedral of Holy Wisdom, Hagia Sophia, into a mosque. Sound familiar? Yeah, but it's in the news <laughs> just, a lot lately. They, they just, they've just returned it into a mosque. It was a museum probably. They've turned it back into a mosque. When the, so it shows how important it is and how, how even though Christians forget any hist- historical importance at all, American Catholics or Christians barely know anything about world history. But it's still quite alive in those places. So we need to pay attention to it. Right. So they returned it into a mosque now. Um, but uh, when he had conquered the Eastern Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire, which had lasted all the way from the 8th century BC until 1453, with a continuous line of emperors. Right. Uh, because people say the fall of the Roman Empire. Well, it never really fell until the 15th century, until the until the Renaissance, practically. Right. People don't realize that. In fact, if you count the Holy Roman Empire in the West, it doesn't fall until Napoleon, you know, yeah. in the early 19th century. But anyway, that's another question. They're always... The, the the progressive uh, historians are always very anti-Roman, so whether east or west. So uh, the when Mehmet II, the conqueror of the Turks, had gotten Constantinople, then he wanted to move forward through the Balkans. That's that east, southeastern part of Europe, Greece and uh, um, uh, northern Macedonia and uh, and Romelia. Serbia, S- Serbia, Albania. Yeah. No. Not Romania. Not Serbia, Romania? Albania. Oh, okay. Serbia, <laughs> Romania, Albania, <laughs> okay. um, uh, Bulgaria, sure. yeah. Croatia, you know, a little bit. The Croatians don't like you to say that, but the, the part of it's in the Balkans. And so on. That whole little peninsula. Right. They wanted to take over that. And they did. They did take over eventually. But they attacked the city of Belgrade. Now, Belgrade is on a promontory where the Danube and the Sava rivers meet. And there was a great Turkish fleet that came to take over the Christian city of Belgrade. And so this was a major issue because if they took Belgrade, they'd be able to take over the whole Balkans. And then the next step would be Vienna, which they, as we know from history, they made it to the gates. But because of the great Polish prince, um, they were they were. uh, kept back. So right. that was the that was already in the 1600s. Well, but in 1453, he takes Constantinople and makes it the capital of a new Ottoman Empire, succeeding the Roman Empire. In 1456, they try to take Belgrade in modern day Serbia. Uh, and uh, then uh, the whole Christian world reacted, uh, uh, but not as powerfully as it should have. The Pope kept begging begging people to get together and help. But of course, it didn't always happen. But in any case, the the, the Turks came, their fleets th- through the ocean on those rivers, and they besieged the city. Well, St. John of Capistron, the successor of, of St. Bernadine of Siena, had uh, a little motley crew of Christian troops rounded up from the western parts of Europe to go and defend the bulwark of Christianity, as the as Croatia and Serbia were called. They were the, the wall 
yeah. the morale of Christianity because they were the last, they were the the, fir- the first defense before they would get into the rest of Europe, into um, Italy and France and Germany and so on. So they have this enormous siege um, and the Turks are absolutely militarily superior in every way with, you know, hundreds of hundreds of sh- ships, yeah. tons of soldiers and so on. And so the the, the Christian troops under the, the um, Hungarian, great Hungarian uh uh, Admiral Hunyadi, um, they were uh, the principal fighters in this battle. But San Juan of Capistrano had his own little group um, who were trying valiantly. They took around, they went around the Ottomans from the from the rear, that is, from the, to, around the Turks from the rear, and they shouted out the holy name of Jesus continually as they went forward. This unaccountably, uh, for any human reason, terrified these Ottomans and they literally picked up and fled. They just got out of there. Yeah. And no one could explain how they had given up so easily having so much uh, power and strength. And of course the victory was ascribed to the power of the Holy name of Jesus. Well, the, the news of the victory reaches Rome on, on what day? August 6th. On August 6th. Yes. <laughs> the Feast of Transfiguration. So Pope Calixtus the third, established the Feast of the Transfiguration in Thanksgiving for the victory at Belgrade, which saved Europe for, uh, for a while, for a few hundred years, right. from another attempt at, um, at, uh, at Islamic conquest. So it's a very, so that's the connection with the Holy Name, because immediately in the minds of the people, the Holy Name had saved uh, yeah. the city in Europe from, from this onslaught, and so the Transfiguration was associated with the Holy Name. And so all over Europe, especially in England, in the north, churches named Saint Savior dedicated to Jesus. Right. Their feast day was on August 6th. Another interesting factoid, very important, is that Pope Calixtus III ordered that the bells be rung in Christendom at three times a day, praying the Angelus to pray against this particular onslaught of the Turks. And so the Angelus, which we normally pray at noon, and, and we can pray at uh, early morning, noon, and evening, the origin of the Angelus is the Pope's order that for prayers against this very attack on the city of Belgrade. Oh. So even our custom of that, which of course includes the Holy Name or recitation of the Rosary, remembering the Incarnation, that goes back to that occasion. So after the victory was won, uh, the custom was continued of praying the Angelus against the enemies. Of Christendom. So when you pray the Angelus, it's important to remember um, we're not only meditating on the Lord's incarnation and the Blessed Mother, but we're also praying to be defended against the enemies of our faith and our culture. These are. There you go. That's a whole big picture. I know. I love that big picture, though, because these are. We're living in times that are very um, uh, vexing to people. And it's always good to remember yes, that, that throughout history, uh, the the name of Jesus prevails, and we it, it gives us a little bit more serenity, I think. Oh, absolutely, and it's a very, it's the most perfect prayer, the Holy Name of Jesus, you know, and prayers that contain it. That's why we end our collects at the beginning of Mass through Jesus Christ, and we, right. our Lord tells us to pray in His name. So, um, it's the most powerful of prayers. Well, thanks for preparing us for um, the Feast of the Transfiguration this year. That's a lot. Um, I, I, that's a lot more than I would have brought to the celebration. I'm glad I have it now. Thanks. Well, Father. yeah. So you think the mystery revealed in the Gospels? Yeah. 
which includes the mystery of the Trinity and and the the, the, the Old Testament as well. And then moving from that to uh, the reality of the feast to celebrate in the church. So her devotion to the Holy Name, her defense from her enemies by the power of the Holy Name. And, and you've got it all. Yeah. It's a great feast day. We could really use a bit of divine epiphany right now. Uh, 2020 feels like a perfect moment for some kind of transfiguration. And that's part of the point of the liturgical calendar of the church. In the life of Christ and in the history of the church, there are these moments, things that we need to be regularly reminded of. This year, being reminded of the glory of God present in Christ feels like a particularly welcome thing. He chose this life. He chose to endure all the venality and the drudgery and even the cruelty uh, of this life. And if the glorious Son of God did this, uh, then it must be something with great glory in it. This is just what we need to remember this year, maybe probably every year, but it seems like we particularly need to remember it this year. Hey, uh, send us an email at focus, uh, no, send an email to focus at catholic.com. That's the way I should say that, otherwise it gets confusing. Focus at catholic.com is our email address. If you want to maybe suggest a future episode or comment on this episode, subscribe to Focus so you'll be notified when new episodes are available. And we have this wonderful young man named Zach who runs the video department and he really wants you when you go to YouTube to like or subscribe it there. This makes uh, Zach's life a lot better because it makes the numbers go up. We'll see you next time, God willing, right here on Catholic Answers Focus. And you said um, not Rumelia because Rumelia is the name that the Turks gave the place. Is that why? Do you remember? Well, yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah. That well, that they well, Romania, Rumelia. No, I mean it's fine. In if, fact, modern Greeks. Uh, modern Greeks in Greek yeah. call themselves Romi. They call themselves Romans. Oh. Because, of course, it was the Roman Empire from – that's why when everyone always says, oh, Latin right, Byzantine right, okay, you can say that if you want. But actually, there's an East Roman right and a West Roman right. The East Roman right is the Byzantine right, and the Western Roman right is the Roman right and its variations. And But it was all Roman it's all Roman. And, yes. And yeah. Right. That's, that's because it was the, it was the Roman world. That's why Romania, which is mostly Byzantine, right, is called Romania. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because they it's, were exactly they were yeah. Roman venerates who were given land there uh, to to settle. So and that's why they have a Latin based language. So it, the the word Roman applies to both edges, and that's why modern modern Islamic terrorists they call us Romans. Yeah. Everybody is Roman. Well, we should, we should we should be proud in that. But the it it is a little yeah. bit vexing to hear some of the reporting on the Hagia Sophia now, when it's it's called uh, an Eastern Orthodox. It, it was an Eastern Orthodox church and all of that. In a certain sense, I know that that's true. But it's a Catholic church for all of us. For I mean, Eastern Orthodox and, and Roman because it, it you know it's it was made long before any of those divisions came in. Right, it was it was built by the Emperor Justinian already right in the in the sixth century, and it was definitely um, you know it was built before uh, the, the separation uh, between east and west. Yeah, the se- I better to say separation because you know the separation between east and west, but uh, but it's perfectly understandable that we call an Eastern Orthodox cathedral because that's it's the you uh, know yeah, it yeah. was uh, right. it, it was separated uh, from the West for for several centuries before the uh, the Turks. But actually, the last liturgy celebrated in Hagia Sophia 
was a Catholic one. You have the Council of Florence in the 15th century, which unites the Eastern and Western churches again. When the Greek bishops get back to the East, uh, it's largely the union's largely rejected uh, by the um, uh, the spiritual elite, the monastics of of the East. Yeah. Um, and so it doesn't get very far. But at the end, the emperor, the last emperor, Constantine the Twelfth, uh, who died fighting on the walls of of uh, Constantinople, defending the city against all hope, um, he promulgated the Union of Florence and accepted the. the the union of the two churches and so the Pope's authority. And so, so the last liturgy celebrated in Hagia Sophia before the Turks took over it was a Catholic, uh, it was, it was in communion with the Holy See. Yeah. The very last one. The last, yeah. it was the last one so far. The, the future. Yes. Yes. Right. Again, right. We have, well, there's always that, that prophecy that that'll come back. The Greeks have a Greek in Greek folk, uh, tradition. There's a prophecy that the priests celebrating the liturgy disappeared into the eastern wall and that when the church is once again uh, belongs to the Christians he will reappear and finish the liturgy and all of us together will praise the holy name of Jesus when that happens Amen Thank you Father You're listening to the Lunchtime Podcast Sampler on Catholic Radio Indy I'm Kent Blanford and we'll be back with more as we explore the transfiguration of Christ so stick around the first radio station signed on back in the 1930s. And wow, people could get news without having to wait for the next day's newspaper and hear great entertainment right in their living rooms. Uh, but then in the late 40s, television came along. And since it could add visual content, well, that would probably kill off radio. But it didn't. In the 70s, satellite radio, eight-track tapes and cassettes, and the Walkman came along. Surely one of these would kill off radio. But they didn't. Now there's streaming on computers, podcasts, Alexa, and smartphones that put the world at your fingertips. And you know what? Radio is still here. In fact, a recent survey of people aged 18 and up showed that on a monthly basis, radio reached more people than television, including time-shifted TV. And for audio programming, more people than smartphones, PC, Alexa, or tablets. When you support Catholic Radio Indy, you're supporting a powerful tool that has the potential to reach over one million people every day with the message of salvation. If you're one of our donors, thank you very much. If you haven't joined our family of donors yet, today would be a good day to do that. Just go to catholicradioindy.org and click on the donate button. That's catholicradioindy.org. And thank you for your support. When a business is looking to expand, they say it's all about location, location, location. But what about when the church needs to expand? To stretch out and reach those fallen away, estranged from the faith, or those who simply have never heard the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Then it's all about vocation, vocation, vocation. We need more people dedicated to the mission of serving the church, more priests, more deacons, more men and women of vowed service, and more lay workers willing to go into the fields. The harvest is rich, but the workers are few. Is God calling you to service? Pray on it, and while you're there, pray for more vocations. A simple request from your friends at Catholic Radio Indy.
Hi, this is Dr. David Anders, host of Called to Communion, which is heard at 2 p.m. weekdays here on Catholic Radio Indy. A while back, while I was in Indianapolis, I had the pleasure of doing my program live from the Catholic Radio Indy studios. I can tell you firsthand the staff is small, but they work super hard to keep all five stations on the air, as well as the podcasts, streaming, phone apps, and all the other ways that you can listen. But they can't do it without your prayers and your financial support. If you are a supporter, thank you very much. If you haven't started a monthly gift yet, please consider doing it today. They really do need your support. Remember, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus asks us all to spread his message of salvation. Supporting ministries like Catholic Radio Indy is one very real, very concrete way that we can all do that without disrupting our busy lives. Please consider starting a monthly gift today at www.catholicradioindy.org. Next up on the sampler as we explore the Transfiguration is an offering from Dr. Edward Sree and Ascension Press. In this podcast from the All Things Catholic series, Dr. Sree examines the radiant glory of the Transfiguration. Hi, I'm Edward Sree, and welcome to All Things Catholic, where real faith meets real life. This week, I want to take you up a tall mountain. We're going to go climb a tall mountain together, a mountain in Galilee, the mountain where Jesus was transfigured, because the Catholic Church this week celebrates the great feast of the transfiguration. But what is it really all about? Have you ever wondered that? What what is the meaning of this spectacular display of Christ's glory? You know the story. He goes up the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and a cloud comes down, and his face starts shining like the sun, and his clothes become dazzling white, and the this heavenly voice speaks through the cloud, saying, this is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And then the scene ends. What is this scene really all about? And what difference does it make in my life? Does it really make any difference, the transfiguration? Well, I would say it makes all the difference because this is one of the most important moments in Jesus's life. In fact, there's a whole mystery of the rosary dedicated to this scene, the fourth luminous mystery, the transfiguration. This is a a crucial turning point in Jesus's life, and it tells us a lot about our own lives. But yet, if you ask the average Catholic, what is the transfiguration all about? They would say, um, I'm not sure, <laughs> I think. Uh, I know I've had bishops even come and ask me, you know, what do I preach on for the transfiguration? I, I don't get it. I don't, I don't know what to talk about, <laughs> you know? And uh, I, I want to unpack that for us today. I want us to see that this isn't just a spectacular moment where Jesus is shining and we're supposed to just sit back and applaud. Way to go, Jesus. That's really cool. No, no. This is a a great moment that Jesus gave, not just for himself, but for us. So we have a window into seeing the great work of transfiguration he wants to do in our own lives. Yes, you see, Jesus wants to transform us. He wants to meet us in our weakness, our brokenness, our sinfulness, but he wants to transform us so that we could share in his glory and radiate his glory in the world. And that's what we're going to talk about in this week's podcast. So welcome to All Things Catholic. I'm your host, Edward Sree. And uh, I want to ask your prayers for something this week. Can I do that here? Can you can you pray for a special intention? I've been working this summer with 800 plus uh, of the Focus missionaries. Uh, you're familiar with Focus Fellowship of Catholic University students. These are young people in their 20s, recent graduates from college, uh, that after they graduate from college, they dedicate two, three, four, five years of their life uh, to go do the work of evangelization in one of the hardest 
areas, one of the hardest cultures to break into, and that's college campuses. <laughs> and so uh, they've been, we've been having to do all of our training uh, virtually online at different points in the summer because of COVID. And they are finishing up their last week right now of their summer training. And they're, they're going to have a commissioning mass this upcoming Sunday. Uh, and that's when they're going to, they're going to make their oath of fidelity, fidelity to the church, a beautiful ritual, and then they'll be commissioned to go off for this great work. So could you pray for them all? Uh, I know uh, about three, we have 300 plus new missionaries, so they're brand new. They're, they're, I'm sure they're a little nervous stepping foot on campus for the first time. Uh, there's others who've been with us for many, many years, the veterans that are with us as well. They could use your prayers as they go out and, and fight the great spiritual battles in the new evangelization on college campuses. So if you could please pray for all the focused missionaries, I would be very grateful. Now, I want to bring you back to the mountain of the transfiguration. And in Galilee, there's a mountain called Mount Tabor or Tabor uh, that is traditionally believed to be where the, the transfiguration took place. It might have been another mountain. We could debate that another time, but this is the place pilgrims to go to the most. And uh, this year, you know, you, if you've ever been up there, you go up this winding road and you have to take these, these small little vans. That you can't even take the big uh, charter buses up there because it's a kind of a, you got the hairpin turns back and forth, back and forth going up the mountain. And, uh, and, I, this year, I, I never had done this before. I always wanted to, but I went with a group of our pilgrims, a small group of us. We decided we're going to just walk the mountain. Uh, so we climbed the mountain up and we, we went up there and it was a beautiful hike, beautiful views, great conversation. Uh, great, to, great to do that. But I was thinking about Peter, James, and John and going, wow, they came up maybe a mountain like this. Uh, maybe it was even taller than this, but that took a while. And uh, as they went up that mountain, and they experienced the transfiguration, what were they thinking? That's the experience I want to bring you into. I want you to see and hear the story of the transfiguration the way Peter, James, and John would have seen and heard it. Because all the events that were unfolding right before them on that mountain, they were very familiar with those events. I'm sure that as they saw one after another after another, they all of a sudden start putting the pieces together and say, we know this. We know this story. This is like a remake of an oldie, an old song being resung again. <laughs> uh, this is, in other words, the events of the transfiguration would bring to mind for any first century Jew, like Peter, James, and John, it would bring to mind another dramatic event that took place in Israel's history long, long ago in the book of Exodus on another great mountain with another great leader when Moses led the people to Mount Sinai. And, and they were going to make their covenant with God at Mount Sinai. And God was going to come down and give them the Ten Commandments. And they were going to seal themselves in, in, in covenant union to be God's chosen people. That foundational moment in Israel's history, Moses goes up a mountain. And a lot of things happened to Moses and his friends that day that are almost exactly what happened to Jesus and Peter, James and John, and what they witnessed in the transfiguration. So let me bring you back to that other mountain, Mount Sinai now, and let's go back to the passage. It's Exodus chapter 24, I want, and I want you just to listen. Listen to what happened here. And as I tell you this, you're going to go, that sounds familiar. Oh, that sounds familiar because it sounds like the transfiguration. But here's what happens. So the Israelites, Israelites, they arrive at Mount Sinai after fleeing from Egypt in the Exodus, and that's where they're going to make their covenant with God to be sealed as the chosen people. But while they're there, Moses set aside three of his closest associates. He called them aside, three of them, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. And he invites them to go with him up the tall mountain. 
Now, does that sound familiar? <laughs> so Moses chooses three, Aaron, Ed, and Abihu, to go up the tall mountain. And then when they go up there, the glory of the Lord covers them. The glory of God's holy presence made manifest in the form of a cloud. They call this the glory cloud, the Shekinah glory cloud. The glory cloud descends on the mountain in the, uh, and it's there for six days. And then on the seventh day, it says in Exodus 24, you read all about this in Exodus 24, uh, but in verses nine through 17, it tells us on the seventh day, a voice called out from the cloud to give Moses the 10 commandments and the tablets of stone. And so just keep that in mind. That's a little detail. On the seventh day was when a voice called out from the cloud. And that's when Moses got the the, the commandments. And then uh, while they stayed at Mount Sinai, Moses's face began to shine, shine very brightly because he had been talking to God. Moses would go into the, the tent of meeting, the, the holy sanctuary where God's presence had dwelt and, and, and he would draw near to God and he'd be talking to God and, it, and his face started to shine because he was radiating, if you will, the, the holy presence of God reflecting it. In fact, when the people saw Moses's radiant face, they were in awe. They were just in awe seeing his radiance and they were afraid to come near him. You can read about that in Exodus 34, verses 29 and 30. But my point is, in telling you these little details is, doesn't this all sound a little familiar? <laughs> Did you notice the parallels? Think about the parallels between Moses at Mount Sinai and Jesus at the transfiguration. Just as Moses brought the people to Mount Sinai as he was announcing the covenant, the first covenant, the, the, the covenant that made Israel the chosen people of God. And that's when they got the Ten Commandments. So Jesus goes to a mountain as he's announcing a new covenant. That's what he's doing. And he's announcing the kingdom of God. It's, it's the coming of the new covenant age. And like Moses, Jesus is going to set aside three of his 12 apostles. He's going to choose three of his closest co-workers, Peter, James, and John, to go with him up the mountain. Just like Moses grabbed Peter or, or grabbed uh, uh, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu to go with him up the mountain. And then at the height of the transfiguration scene with Jesus, the cloud of glory appears again. God's cloud comes down upon the mountain and overshadows them, just like the cloud covered Moses and the Israelite leaders at Mount Sinai. And similarly, just you know, while they're on top of the mountain, what happens to Jesus? His face starts to shine brightly, like Moses's face was shining. Uh, Jesus's face shines brightly, and the apostles fall down in awe. They're in awe over Jesus's radiant face, just like the the Israelites were in awe when they saw Moses's radiant face. And then, just as a heavenly voice called out from the cloud to give Moses the old law. So now the Father's voice, the Heavenly Father's voice calls out from the cloud again to reveal the new law in Jesus. Who is Jesus? The Father says through the voice from the cloud, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased to listen to him. And here's what's really fascinating. The voice of God speaks these words on the seventh day. It's fascinating. When you read Matthew's gospel, it sets up the whole scene in Matthew chapter 17, verse one. It says, after six days, Jesus went with Peter, James, and John up the mountain. Uh, just like on the seventh day, 
at Mount Sinai in Exodus 24 was when the voice came from the cloud speaking on the seventh day and giving Moses the Ten Commandments. Uh, so all these parallels, isn't that fascinating? You know, so if you're Peter, James, or John, and you're just witnessing these events for the first time, uh, watching them one after another after another, you would start to put the pieces together. Oh, this is like a reenactment of Exodus 24. It's a reenactment of what happened with Moses uh, and, and, and the people of Israel at Mount Sinai when they were forging the covenant, the covenant God made with his chosen people. And so that's telling them Jesus is about to forge a new covenant with his people. And, and they're the new leaders to be with him on this, in this amazing event. Now, that's just one piece of the puzzle. There's a lot of parallels between Moses and Jesus for sure. But as amazing as these similarities are between Moses and Jesus, the gospels are very careful to note that Jesus is vastly superior. Yes, there's a lot of parallels with Moses, but Jesus is much greater than Moses was. First of all, Jesus outshines Moses. <laughs> Moses's face was described simply as shining. Yeah, Mo- Moses had a shining face. That's pretty good. But the Gospel of Matthew describes Jesus's face is shining brightly like the sun. <laughs> so, you know, even even more radiant than than Moses was. Uh, and Jesus is radiating the divine glory so much that even his garments appear white as light. So uh, again, Moses didn't have anything like that. Moses just was, was just, you know, shining. Jesus is shining like the sun and, and his clothes are, are white as light. So much more radiance with Jesus than there was with Moses. Similarly, while the event reveals Jesus's divinity, we can also see that it manifests his glorified humanity. Because having a shining face doesn't mean one's divine. You know, right? Moses had a shining face. You know, he wasn't divine. He, but Moses was simply reflecting the glory of God. But when we contemplate the transfigured Jesus, we see not only a glimpse of his divinity, but also a view of his glorified humanity, which perfectly reflects God's glory. In turn, we get a snapshot of how our own fallen humanity is meant to be healed, perfected, and glory, and, and clothed with the glory of God. And this is what I really want to make sure we take away today, is when we look at Jesus and we see him transfigured on this great feast coming up here uh, in, in this week, I, I want us to, to not just put him on a pedestal and say, wow, that was amazing. It, it's showing his divinity. That's awesome. And, and it is, but it does so much more. It's also pointing to the great work God wants to do in our lives. Uh, God wants to transfigure us. And you, look, you get a glimpse, you look at Jesus and we see what happened with Jesus. We, we're, we're called to be conformed to Christ. In fact, St. Paul uses this, some of this imagery from the transfiguration to describe the work he wants to do in our souls. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul views the transfiguration of Moses' face and the, and the transfiguration of Christ's face as a sign of the transfiguration he wants to bring about in all our lives. He says, and we with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. That's the great work that God is doing in us. He's changing us. We might be sinners. We might struggle. We might have lots of weaknesses and fears and and many, many defects in our character that hold us back. And yet what Jesus wants to do is meet us in the valley so he could take us up to the Mount of Transfiguration. He wants to transfigure us. He wants to make us 
so radiant that we begin to reflect the glory of God. You see, this is the powerful message of the transfiguration for our lives today. The transfiguration is not just a magnificent, magnificent scene, the life of Jesus we're supposed to admire from afar, again, just to applaud and go, that was beautiful, Jesus. No, no, it's a sign of what Jesus wants to do in all of us. He wants us to share in his glory. He wants to change us. Indeed, he is calling us to be changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. So I invite you in this week of the transfiguration and every and anytime you contemplate the scene, especially when you come to it in the fourth luminous mystery of the rosary, I want you to, to yes, praise God, be in awe like Peter, James, and John were, fall on your knees and, and be in awe over the mystery of the transfiguration in Jesus. But let it also be a sign of hope for you that no matter what burdens you carry in life, no matter what slavery you have to to certain sins, whatever addictions you struggle with, whatever weaknesses that that weigh you down, that your ultimate destiny is that transfiguration, that mountain peak experience, that God wants to change you. And he really is going to meet you where you're at to transform you. If we're faithful to him, if we go to him each day, if we rely on him, that's the message of the transfiguration. So I hope this has been helpful. Hope this helps you get into this great feast day uh, here this week. Uh, Once again, I want to encourage you, if you enjoyed this podcast, please share this with other people that they may be blessed by it as well. And if you have any questions, you can always reach out to me at edwardsri.com. That's edwardsri.com. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Last thing, the book that I'm drawing upon, I have some reflections on the transfiguration in my book on the rosary. It's called Praying the Rosary Like Never Before. I have a little reflection on the fourth luminous mystery. You could learn more about the transfiguration there, or you can check out my book on Matthew's gospel that walks through all the different scenes, including this one on the transfiguration for this year, which is the year focused on the, the gospel of Matthew in, this, in the Sunday readings. So you could check out my book on Matthew's gospel called God With Us, Encountering Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Thanks so much for listening, and God bless. In our last offering on today's sampler, we have an offering from the U.S. Catholic series, Sunday Reflections. In this episode, Rene Roden contemplates the transfiguration in an episode entitled Reflection, Share the Memory. Hi, my name is Renee Roden, and I'm a Catholic worker and journalist in Chicago. And I'm going to be sharing a reflection for the readings for August 6th. So we live in a digital environment where nothing is forgotten. At least it seems that way, right? Anything we want to remember is just an internet search away or stored somewhere in our text messages or emails. And one of the messages of today's Feast of the Transfiguration, I believe, is the importance of memory, especially something I think we can forget, tangled up in the World Wide Web, the importance of remembering together. In the second reading today, the Apostles Peter, the Apostle Peter's letter to the Romans, Peter recalls this moment of transfiguration. Although the authorship of these letters is debated, even if the author of the epistle wasn't Peter, perhaps someone writing in his honor or a student preserving his wisdom or memories, I find it beautiful that the author still manages to transmit with this clarity and power Peter's memory of this mysterious moment on the mountain.
We had been eyewitnesses of his majesty, he writes. When that unique declaration came to him from the majestic glory, this is my son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice come from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter's recollection closely mirrors the transfiguration accounts in the Gospels of Mark, Matthew, and Luke. Whatever vision Peter, James, and John saw on that mountain, its beauty and its power clearly resonated with them deeply. It stood out to them as important and essential, which is why they recall it so vividly. They clearly recalled that moment often together, telling each other the story over and over again, because an important part of having an experience is remembering it and remembering it together. So how about those tents? Why didn't Jesus want Peter to build those shelters on the mountains? Why didn't he want him to hold on to this moment? So for a month this summer, I was working in Jerusalem, the holy city, in what we often call the holy land. But if there's one thing Jerusalem teaches us, it's that no building lasts forever. Roman ruins are covered up by crusader remnants. Byzantine shrines become toppled columns on the side of highways. Magnificent shrines built by empires prove to be just as temporary as Peter's tents. That's because tents and temples are not fitting monuments to God's glory. In the Holy Land, there are many shrines built over holy sites, but what makes those sites holy is not the building itself. It's not the gold or the marble or the iconography or the art, as magnificent as those may be, but it's the memory of us believers the community of people who have gathered in these places throughout the centuries to recall together, we have seen his glory. Christ's glory cannot be held in one physical location, on Mount Tabor, Mount Zion, or in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Rather, that glorious vision of Christ is memorialized, it's passed on in our memories, in the memories of all the followers of Christ. We are told each Mass the original command of Christ's followers to do this in the memory of me. They beheld his glory, and we do too, even now, 2,000 years later, as we recall it and remember it together. The Eucharist, the community's shared anamnesis or remembering of Christ's sacrifice and his gift of himself and love, makes Christ truly present in our world. Rather than building a monument in response to holiness, we are called to become the living stones. Our lives, our hearts, our communities are called to become a testament to the transfiguration we have seen. The church is not real estate. We don't need to pitch a tent. We just have to go out and share the memory. That's all the time we have for Catholic Radio Indy's Lunchtime Podcast Sampler for today. You can find this show in podcast form at catholicradioindy.org, along with links to more of the programs we've shared. I'm Kent Blanford, and until next time, may God bless. You can hear the Holy Mass every day at 8 a.m. right here on Catholic Radio Indy. Did you miss something in this show or just want to hear it again? Podcasts of this and all our other great local programs are available 24-7 at catholicradioindy.org.